Hello, and welcome to the newest episode in Dialogue Topics. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. This season, we're talking about the history of LDS scholarship on specific themes, exploring a topic in depth to consider how Dialogue has been a forum for these important issues since its founding. We'll also bring you up to date on these topics with our more recent issues to discuss some of the current trends. All of our topic pages are curated to bring you comprehensive collections of annotated scholarship and may be found at dialoguejournal.com slash topic pages, all one word, or navigate there from our homepage. There you'll find amazing resources and research on tons of issues. This month is March and is Women's History Month. With that in mind, I wanted to take some time to talk about the role that dialogue has played in Mormon women's history, including marking the birthplace of modern Mormon feminism in 1971 and continuing to be a hub for groundbreaking work on Mormon women's history, feminist theology, and cultural analysis of gender in the LDS tradition. Did you know that there are at least eight issues dedicated to this topic from 1971 to 2019? in addition to many standalone articles. In fact, there are so many that this podcast episode is really just scratching the surface of thousands and thousands of pages of published material. Now, I should note that I have spent a lot of time thinking about Mormon feminism. I've written a bit about it in my own book on 20th century gender and my articles on Mormon feminism and Heavenly Mother. And I've co-edited the Rutledge Handbook of Mormonism and Gender. I consider Claudia Bushman, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, and Judy Dushku friends and mentors. I thought I knew a lot about this topic. After researching for this podcast, I realized that I uncovered even more new gems, and I started to see the role that dialogue has played in this history in a new light. In this episode, I'm going to walk through this history in four major phases. First, I want to talk about the role that dialogue played in the foundation of Mormon feminism. This introduces us to some of the key figures over the last 50 years. Then, I want to talk about the conflict that feminists faced between their values and their loyalty to the church during the years that the church was opposing the Equal Rights Amendment, as well as some of the fallout. In the 1980s and 1990s, feminists and church leaders came into more open conflict once again. Finally, I want to review the scholarship on this issue over the past few decades, looking at Mormon feminism in the new millennium as it appears in the pages of Dialogue. Act 1. Mormon Feminism Reborn When we talk about the founding of modern Mormon feminism, There are two contexts that I want to mention here. In our last episode, we noted how dialogue was born in the context of the civil rights movement, but 1966 is also right in the middle of the rebirth of feminism in America. This is the first major context. By the 1960s, we begin to chart what was generally referred to as second-wave feminism. If the first wave was the 19th and early 20th century around white women's voting rights, the second wave dominates the 1960s and 70s as women are calling for equal treatment in the workplace, at home, and in their religious traditions. 
No doubt Mormon women all over the country were being influenced by these broader cultural shifts. However, the Mormon women in Boston were particularly moved and began to organize. In 1970, they came together to discuss these issues. The second major context that has to be understood is that church leaders in this period are really emphasizing what they called the patriarchal order. This isn't just a holdover of old values, but actually is a new, reassertive patriarchy that was dismantling their Relief Society's independence and putting into place all sorts of new policies and programs that would ensure male leadership. Women are actually losing power in the church in the post-war period. It was in this context that the Boston Women's Group first began to act, creating an independent funding stream for the Relief Society in their area. Dialogue co-founder and co-editor Eugene England was based in Stanford, California, but was visiting Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1970. Claudia Bushman remembers walking with England and Laurel Thatcher Ulrich on the Harvard campus one evening and pausing near the Widener Library. I just blurted out that there shouldn't be a women's issue of dialogue and that we had a group who could put it together. According to Bushman, England liked the idea. I expected more of a hard sell, she recalled, but he just immediately agreed and said to go ahead with it. The result was the now famous pink issue of dialogue. It was edited, illustrated, and written by that group of women in Boston. And it marks the official beginning of modern Mormon feminism. Devery Anderson has written, The pink issue was the first public sign that a feminist movement within modern Mormonism had been born. The editors of Mormon Feminism Essential Writings, Joanna Brooks, Rachel Steenblick, and Hannah Wheelwright, wrote, The pink issue of dialogue, as it would later be known, struck a warm, frank, and bold note to mark the beginning of a new era in Mormon women's history. It's fascinating, looking back on this issue, now 50 years old. It was controversial, but it wasn't confrontational. This wasn't the Udall letter on race and the priesthood, but rather an attempt to start a conversation and to emphasize compatibility. Claudia Bushman wrote that they were committed to the compatibility of the gospel and feminism. It covers everything from housework to education to respect in church. Quote, The issue seems pretty innocuous now, but the whole project was still pretty threatening, insisted Laurel Thatcher Ulrich 30 years later. Some women didn't want to be associated with something that might make them seem critical of the church. Others thought that we were not being bold enough. I think we were just trying hard to be ourselves. A lot of this was just women telling their stories, and Ulrich was right about how it was received, despite the fact that this issue is now legendary. Responses assailed the idea of a middle ground, some saying that it wasn't faithful enough to the role of women as mother, and others that it wasn't radical enough by praising singlehood and childlessness. One response from a single 25-year-old male in the letters to the editor in the next issue is a classic case of mansplaining. The penchant for autobiography in this issue led to a lack of systematic analysis on the problem of women in Mormonism in general. Richard Sherlock was the author. He critiqued Claudia Bushman for being pro-marriage and pro-family in her feminism. A letter from the summer of 1972 said, The women's issue followed the church line, ho-hum. Another letter from that same issue, 
Mr. Sherlock was not the only person who had great hopes for the issue on women and came away disappointed. At least it was a beginning. Raising children is a challenge. Mopping the floor is a bore. Talking about it or writing about it is a deadly bore. Please, just because we are women does not mean that we are interested in hearing more about housework or cooking or diapering. It's bad enough we have to do it. These disagreements continued for years afterward. By 1974, the women in Boston organized by starting their own publication. Not a scholarly journal like Dialogue, but a magazine that featured the arts, poetry, personal voices, and more. They named it Exponent 2. Named after the Women's Exponent, the 19th century Mormon feminist publication that these women had discovered in the stacks at Harvard's Widener Library and had been astonished to discover their feminist foremothers. Bob Reese, then the editor of Dialogue, reflected on the pink issue and the first issue of Exponent 2. Frankly, I am still somewhat disappointed that the pink issue was not bolder and more far-reaching in its attempts to speak to the serious problems of sexism within Mormonism. Your approach and tone may have been more practical and realistic, but personally, I would have liked a little more boldness. That is, by the way, the same objection I have to the first issue of Exponent 2. It seems to be trying so hard not to offend that it comes off pretty bland. Dialogue's letter to the editor section became a place to talk about the new venture of Exponent 2, the second independent Mormon publication after Dialogue. Complaints extended to Exponent 2 after the inaugural issue in 1974. What a contrast to Exponent the original. Exponent 2 is timid and tentative, where its namesake is forthright and assertive. The difference is due to the fact that 19th century Mormon women didn't question either their rights or their independence, both of which were hard-earned, and contemporary Mormon women seem uncertain of both. The history that spans these two publications has to be among the most intriguing in the annals of women's studies. So, I want to point out that the birth of Mormon feminism had a rocky start, but it foreshadowed the very struggles that it would often find itself in. Too radical for some, too conservative for others. But the existence of Exponent 2 didn't mean that Mormon feminism disappeared from dialogue. Dialogue continued to be a place in these early years to discuss the major issues of Mormon feminism. Now, in the 1960s and 70s, you'll all recall that race and the priesthood was heating up as a topic in the church and in the pages of dialogue. The question of women and the priesthood wasn't far behind. In summer 1974, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich writes an essay about why she doesn't want the priesthood. If the priesthood were a profession, I'd feel differently precisely because it is blatantly and intransigently sexist. The priesthood gives me no pain. One need not be kind, wise, intelligent, published, or professionally committed to receive it, just over 12 and male. Thus, it presumes difference without superiority. I think of it as a secondary sex characteristic, like whiskers, something I could admire without struggling to attain. A letter responding to Ulrich said in fall 1974 issue, I was shocked to read Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's short piece in the most recent issue of Dialogue. She states that the priesthood is blatantly and intransigently sexist and that therefore the priesthood gives her no pain. She says she feels no urge to struggle to attain it, but the entire tone of her note suggests she is yearning to have the power which the priesthood represents 
and resents the fact that she cannot get it in spite of being perhaps better qualified in terms of spiritual gifts than many males who have it. While I do not question Sister Ulrich's spiritual gifts, she seems to have missed a point fundamental to the order of the kingdom. The male has the right by blood to preside over the female in righteous dominion. It is the female's to uphold the male who presides in righteousness. The sooner Sister Ulrich and other sisters in the church come to accept this fundamental principle, the happier they will be. I, for one, am glad that Laurel didn't listen to this advice. In these formative years, LDS feminists were finding their voice in a number of ways. First, they were reclaiming their past. Women's history becomes an important part of this movement. It isn't an accident that both Ulrich and Bushman go on to be leading historians of America and Mormonism at Harvard and Columbia, respectively, with women's stories at the heart of much of what they do. Second, they're telling their own stories and being authentic to who they were as Mormons and as feminists. Third, they understand the power of organizing. They not only produce a founding document in the pink issue, but put forward a number of other publications, including Exponent 2 and some groundbreaking historical articles in an edited book from this era. I'm proud that Dialogue was the venue that helped launch modern Mormon feminism and continues to be a home for these critical conversations after more than 50 years. This is Linda Hoffman Kimball of the Dialogue Foundation Board. This is Aaron Brown. I am Chris Kimball. My name is Dalen Amasimaku, board member of the Dialogue Foundation. For nearly two centuries, the Mormon tradition has produced a proud corpus of thought and culture. For the last 50 years, Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, has been the primary repository for the best of that tradition. As individuals have attempted to find new ways to be both Mormon and modern, Dialogue has provided the arena in which these conversations could take place. Dialogue's board of directors has made the decision to make all of the journal's content free the moment it is published. While we are fortunate to be in a position to make this transition, we are asking for your help so we can continue to do so for the next 50 years. Traditional readers can still subscribe to our quarterly print journal, but we also have a new donation model that allows readers to pledge a particular amount per month to support Dialogue's mission. Go to dialoguejournal.com forward slash subscribe to pass along the gift of Dialogue's deep, thoughtful analysis to a new generation of readers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Act 2, The Equal Rights Amendment. The feminists in Boston weren't the only Mormon feminists. There were LDS women all over the country who were being influenced by the broader feminist movement, and no issue became more important than the Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA, in the 1970s. In the early 1970s, most Mormons supported the ERA. But in the beginning of 1975, the church came out against the ERA and launched a national political effort to defeat its ratification. Mormon feminists found themselves in a tough spot, having to choose between supporting the church or supporting the most important feminist cause since women's suffrage. This was the chief goal of the second-wave feminist movement, and it was, after all, a pretty innocuous statement 
but one that would have had huge symbolic and real-world consequences. It proved to be hugely divisive for Mormon feminists. Now, in this period, dialogue had moved to Washington, D.C. in the second half of the 1970s under the editorship of Mary Bradford. Mary, the first female editor of dialogue, was already showing leadership that women were taking in, in this arena. But it's notable that from 1975 to 1980, there is little written on Mormon feminism or women's issues, including a profound silence on the ERA. But that didn't mean that Mormon women were silent on the issue. The chief group that you need to know about during this period is Mormons for the ERA and its most important leader, Sonia Johnson. Johnson and Mormons for ERA were a feminist movement that directly challenged church authority. They held events that garnered huge media attention, including flying a banner over General Conference that said, Heavenly Mother Loves the ERA. Johnson sparred with Senator Orrin Hatch in a Senate hearing. She grew increasingly frustrated, moving away from compatibility between feminism and Mormonism, and eventually called the church, quote, the last unmitigated Western patriarchy in a caustic speech. Now, it's important to realize that the church in the 1970s was pretty strict. Women couldn't give prayers in mixed-sex meetings for much of this decade. The end of the racial restrictions on the priesthood actually correlates with a tighter patriarchal authority. In any case, Sonia Johnson is excommunicated for that speech in December of 1979. Dialogue's silence was a source of concern. The first issue of the 1980s is filled with letters to the editor on the ERA. Please do something on the naughty women's movement. We need more discussion of these issues rather than warmed over historical PhD dissertations. This was the issue. The ERA had been going on for eight years and five years of the church opposing it. Feminism was transforming business, relationships, and the church, and dialogue had been ducking it. Though dialogue had sat out these issues up until then, the floodgates broke in 1981 with three of the four issues that year dedicated to this topic. The first one comes in spring of 1981, which includes an interview with Beverly Campbell, the anti-ERA spokeswoman for the LDS Church. She was the LDS version of Phyllis Schlafly, the anti-ERA spokeswoman for the National Stop ERA movement. Campbell was the anti-Sonia Johnson. They'd both been invited to speak at the Today Show, but Johnson refused to appear with Campbell. There was a feud between them. Dialogues interview is really an excellent interview and a great resource for getting at what's happening for conservative women during this time. The summer 1981 issue then turns to Sonia Johnson. Mary Bradford writes a brief article, The Odyssey of Sonia Johnson, which is a chronological biography based around major milestones. There are lots of details about her battle for the ERA, conflicts with Orrin Hatch, and so on. But 1981... Sonia Johnson had published her book, From Housewife to Heretic. 
There was still a huge controversy over her excommunication nearly two years later. It was the most notorious excommunication in the church up until the September 6th in 1993. This biography was then followed by an interview with Sonia Johnson in the same issue. Mary Bradford did the interview, and it's notable that Beverly Campbell, Sonia Johnson, and Mary Bradford were all from Virginia, making D.C. the hub of Mormon women's activity. The interview is a little challenging. There's a lot in there about Johnson's divorce and her excommunication. It has a lot about emotion, about betrayals from local friends and leaders. There are also some great stories about her daughter asking to pass the microphone during testimony meeting or to pass out programs and her bishop saying, no, that is a priesthood function. It was in this time that President Spencer W. Kimball reversed the policy that had been in place for a number of years that women couldn't pray in sacrament meeting. I think it's important to recognize just how patriarchal the church was at the time for context. After these two issues about the ERA, the winter 1981 issue is the 10-year anniversary of the pink issue, sometimes called the red issue. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich and Claudia Bushman return. In those 10 years, they had both finished PhDs with six children each and became professors. Feminism had continued to transform society and rip out the church over the last decade. Laurel writes a retrospective in this issue. What had happened over the last 10 years? One of the things that surprised me was how much she describes the fights that these early Boston women were having. We talked about how it received mixed reviews, often being seen as too timid, but she was also writing during the time of the rise of the religious right, the defeat of the ERA, the excommunication of Sonia Johnson. How did Bob Reese expect us to write about polygamy or the priesthood when we couldn't even write about housework without risking a schism. So it was that my first feeling of feminist outrage were directed not at the brethren, but at the kindly gentlemen at dialogue. Who did they think they were presuming to tell us what Mormon women should want? She continues, The pink dialogue proclaimed the value of women's voices. Yet in 1971, few Mormon women were really prepared to speak. Before we could write with any depth about the tough issues, we had to do a little more experimenting with our own lives. One of the famous lines from this essay, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints simultaneously enlarges and diminishes women should hardly be surprising since it was born and has grown to maturity in a larger society which does the same. And there's an attempt to reset then after this tumultuous decade. One more quotation from Laurel's essay. A feminist is a person who believes in equality between the sexes, who recognizes discrimination against women, and who is willing to work to overcome it. A Mormon feminist believes that these principles are compatible not only with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but with the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This winter 1981 issue was more than just a nice retrospective on the pink issue. It also set out a bold new agenda after 10 years of feminist thought and the next generation wanted to talk about even more substantive topics. And right here in Dialogue, 40 years ago, Mormon feminists broke another taboo, raising the question of women and the priesthood for the first time in print. 
1978, the church had received a revelation ending the restrictions on black men from being ordained to the priesthood and black men and women from attending the temple. Naturally, people increasingly started to ask the question about women's ordination as well. This was a topic in numerous Christian denominations, and many were opening up in the 1970s. In 1981, the RLDS Church received a revelation to ordain women. And thus we get Nadine Hansen's Women and the Priesthood in the Winter 1981 issue. Her bio says that she was a mother of four and a senior at San Jose State studying religion and economics. These women were incredible. This is the first real treatise on the subject in the LDS tradition. This was the kind of thing that more liberal Mormon feminists had been hoping for over the past decade. But what more conservative Mormon feminists and women were dreading? It was a more rigorous and intellectual engagement with the historical record and a sophisticated reading of scripture. It is self-consciously building on the 1978 revelation on the priesthood. Quote, before June 1978, we all readily understood that the denial of priesthood to black men was a serious deprivation. Singling out one race of men for priesthood exclusion was easily recognized as injustice, and most of us thought we were deeply gratified to see that injustice removed by revelation. But somehow it is much more difficult for many people to see denial of the priesthood to women as a similar injustice. Hansen really tackles the hierarchical arguments about the priesthood and questions whether the nascent egalitarianism, separate but equal, was possible. Anthony Hutchison also writes on this topic in the Winter 1981 issue in his article, Women in Ordination, Introduction to the Biblical Context. He wrote some of the most important articles on Mormonism and scriptural scholarship during this period. Quote, the topic is discussed more and more openly he assures us. The fall 1985 issue also treats women in the priesthood with essays from Melody Munch Charles, Linda King Newell, Meg Whitley Priestley, and others. The priesthood was then a big issue in the 1980s, but it was mostly in scholarly circles. We didn't see any activism on this issue. There are also other venues that are popping up. Sunstone Magazine is founded in the late 70s and begins hosting fora, at Sunstone and Dialogue and the Mormon Women's Forum and other organizations, this stuff was coming up in conversation. Meanwhile, women's history is moving forward with important, mature historians during this decade who had been displaced after 1982, but regrouped and continued their work. And we see this mature feminist theology really taking off in the 1980s. Margaret Merrill Toscano's Beyond Matriarchy, Beyond Patriarchy, is a speculative feminist theology in the spring 1988 issue. Melody Munch Charles, The Need for a New Mormon Heaven, which offers a early critical appraisal of Heavenly Mother as imagined by many Mormon feminists, appears in the fall 1988 issue. So in the two decades following the founding of modern Mormon feminism, there were some rough years as they struck to find a balance between their faith and feminism. But the conflicts really rose to the surface over the ERA. But Mormon feminists didn't leave en masse. Rather, they regrouped and reimagined, remaining committed, producing new groundbreaking scholarship, pushing boundaries in history and theology, and raising the enduring questions.
This is Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue. I want to tell you about the Dialogue Podcast Network. In addition to great audio content you'll find in our feed, this collection is made up of shows by Latter-day Saints who wish to bring their faith into dialogue with larger streams of religious thought, like Mormon News Report, which takes a deep dive into topics pertaining to LDS culture, or Beyond the Block, which centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Other podcasts in this network include Face in Hat, Words Fall In, and Gospel Tangents Podcast. For links to these and all the other amazing content Dialogue has to offer, visit dialoguejournal.com. And while you're there, consider donating. Your sustained generosity is what enables us to continue our mission of facilitating dialogue in the spirit of learning and understanding. Thank you. Act 3. Open Conflict In the 1990s, we enter into a dark period for Mormon feminists' relationship with the church. There are going to be a number of open conflicts and excommunications in this period. There's a sense of restlessness in the articles that they were writing. Things are moving forward. There's great new scholarship, but it seems that the church isn't really changing. The Sonia Johnson issue is a decade old by now, but loomed in the background. Yet, there was also a sense, almost 20 years after the pink issue, that these issues were somehow passé. Consider the opening to the fall and winter 1990 issues, which were dedicated to women's history, feminist theology, and so on. A woman's issue in 1990? Doesn't that smack of tokenism, of division rather than unity, of sexism rather than sexual equality? Perhaps it would if women's voices hadn't been integral and almost proportionate in dialogue for more than 20 years now. Perhaps it would if the landmark pink issue of 1971 and red one of 1981 hadn't mattered so much to both men and women. This sense that there was something strange about still talking about this topic 20 years later strikes me as interesting. The fall 1990 issue has a great essay on theology, Alison Walker, Theological Foundations of Patriarchy, and another by Bettina Lindsay, Woman as Healer, that looks at the history of women and gifts of the Spirit. There's also articles on domestic violence, the good woman syndrome, and other important topics. One is on Mormon women and the right to work. Levina Fielding Anderson has an article, The Grammar of Inequality. I just want to give one quote from this one. The scriptures are profoundly exclusionary. It is an agonizing paradox. But to the degree we love and use the language of the scriptures, we also love and use the language of exclusion. I feel that women must be fully included in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because the scriptural texts fully include them, nor because our theology perfectly includes them, but because any other pattern does violence to the fabric of the universe, distorting and misshaping the image of God that I strive, however imperfectly, to see and reach toward. When language becomes a veil, masking and disguising God, then it is imperative, as a matter of spiritual health, that language change. I think the process, though arduous, will be accompanied by joy. It's interesting to me to see the negative reactions to these issues. Responding to the issues in 1990, there's a letter in the summer of 1991. Equity between the sexes is unquestionably an issue of importance, 
but one might reasonably ask if it is the only issue. The fall 1990 issue of Dialogue was devoted almost entirely to this issue and was a major part of the winter issue. Perhaps instead you could have devoted some space to addressing the completely one-sided treatment of this topic in Dialogue. Surely the word dialogue does not mean that those holding one point of view should spend their time and energy reinforcing one another's prejudice. Is dialogue going to treat a wide range of issues in an intellectually honest manner or become merely a propaganda machine under the control of persons with only one point of view? Another letter from fall 1991. I have only recently finished a cover-to-cover reading of the fall 1990 women's issue, But I must send my thanks and sense of awestruck appreciation for an issue of such power and magnitude. I have pondered for some weeks now just what I can possibly say to express my sense of indebtedness to each and every contributor. And unfortunately, I've come up empty-handed. Still, I must somehow try. There are great historical studies that are coming out during this time period as well, including the winter 1991 issue, which includes Lola Van Wagenen's in their own behalf, the politicization of Mormon women and the 1870 franchise, which is especially relevant given the 2020 anniversary of the National Franchise of Women. And also, this is the subject of Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's recent book, A House Full of Females. So that takes us up to 1993, and this is a big one. The whole spring 1993 issue is powerful and one of the most controversial ever published in dialogue. The one essay that I want to focus on here is related to feminism, but it's not not exclusively about feminism. First, I need to give a little background. For a little more than a decade before this, since the early 1980s, tensions between church leaders and scholars had been heating up. Historians are publishing a lot of material that is embarrassing church leaders, You've got the Hoffman forgeries, which hurt them twice, first when they publicized the content, and then when they turned out to be fakes. As church leaders were playing ping pong with Mormon scholars, some of them were going after them behind the scenes and some were protecting them. Tensions were really high. Enter Lavina Fielding Anderson's article, The LDS Intellectual Community and Church Leadership, A Contemporary Chronology which is a 60-page article on what she calls ecclesiastical abuse. This represents the early work of the Mormon alliance that Paul Toscano had started when he was seeking organized pushback against church leaders interfering in scholarship. Quote, The clash between obedience to ecclesiastical authority and the integrity of individual conscience is certainly not one upon which Mormonism has a monopoly. But the past two decades have seen accelerating tensions in the relationship between the institutional church and the two overlapping sub-communities, I claim, intellectuals and feminists. This article really is about historians and feminists and acknowledges that scientists and others might also have their stories. But the issue with the new Mormon history movement and various feminists during the ERA and afterward needed airing. Levina belonged to both communities, historians and feminists. The article then discusses conflicts from 1972 to 1992, but really focusing on the prior decade before that. And it takes people through the beginning and end of the Leonard Arrington stint as church history and his exile afterward. 
and it documents many episodes of intimidation of historians. It quotes letters from general authorities attacking in general and specifically certain historians for airing unflattering history of church leaders, and it goes over the church's efforts to disrupt the International Women's Year Conference, and it discusses Sonia Johnson's excommunication. The Committee to Strengthen the Members, or the Strengthening the Church Members Committee, is behind a lot of this supervision, which had been publicly exposed in 1992 as headed by James E. Faust and Russell M. Nelson. It reveals that several of those who were being investigated had files on them and that Salt Lake City seems to be calling local stake presidents and bishops. Some of the main characters in this story are Paul Toscano, D. Michael Quinn, Lavina Fielding Anderson, Linda King Newell, Maxine Hanks, and others. In 1991 to 1993, this is receiving a lot of media coverage and is really a low point with the church's interactions with these groups. LDS intellectuals are speaking out. They're comparing this to McCarthyism. Eugene England's essay compares it to the Salem witch trials. So Levina Fielding Anderson is unfortunately excommunicated for this article as part of the September 6, which included other prominent feminists, Maxine Hanks and Margaret Toscano. Many others were caught up at BYU and elsewhere who weren't necessarily excommunicated, but were a lot of pressure was put on them. The summer 1994 issue has another special topics issue devoted to women. Janice Allred's groundbreaking article toward a Mormon theology of God the Mother is a foundational piece of scholarship on this topic. Martha Sontag Bradley, Seizing Sacred Space, looks at women's engagement in early Mormonism. David Hall's article, Anxiously Engaged, Amy Brown Lyman and Relief Society Charity Work 1917 to 1945, informs his later full-length biography of Lyman, an indispensable work of what women's authority in the church was like before correlation. There's also one of my favorite articles of all time in dialogue, Lynn Matthews Anderson, Toward a Feminist Interpretation of Latter-day Scripture. I think it's an indisputable piece of scholarship that's still relevant. Margaret Toscano also has a classic essay in this issue. If Mormon women have had the priesthood since 1843, why aren't they using it? That looks at the new light that scholarship had been done on the Relief Society in the 1980s that uncovered new stories about the role of the priesthood keys in the founding of the Relief Society. This was a tough period of conflict with church leaders, but I wanted to end with this. Cecilia Conchar-Farr's Dancing Through the Doctrine, Observations on Religion and Feminism, which appears in the fall 1995 issue. Now, Farr had run into troubles at BYU as part of the 1993 crackdown, but she wants to desecularize feminism and find space for feminist critique of religion from inside positions of faith. Quote, Religious feminists, and certainly Mormon feminists, might lay some of the blame on the loss of religious discourse in feminism, not only on our reluctance to use it, but also on a wrestling away of this language by the conservative groups who have set up feminists, along with witches and lesbians, as the enemies of God. Perhaps I am also writing in response to the question that I hear often from many of my, as we say in Mormonism, Gentile friends. Why do you stay in such a male-dominated religion? I'm often tempted to ask them, admittedly begging the question, which institutions they associate with that are not dominated by men 
their banks, their government, their schools or factories or hospitals. I stay because Mormonism means something to me at the deepest levels of my being. So I find myself in my own religious odyssey, sitting in a structure I have deconstructed, but that I still admire. I stare at the clouds through the open beams where the ceiling once was and admire the beams without wishing for the ceiling. And certainly I have no plans for a desert escape. It's a tough position to take in this particular historical moment as an intellectual and a feminist. I love my church and I am proud to be a Mormon. Act 4. Mormon Feminism in the New Millennium By this time, dialogue had moved past commemorating the 1971 pink issue on every 10th anniversary. In 1990 and then two issues in 1994, they devoted to this topic alone. There were other articles in the meantime that we've discussed, and we're skipping over many of them for time, but it wasn't completely silent. Still, It wasn't until nine years after 1994, in fall 2003, that we get another full issue devoted to women's issues. It was exactly a decade after the September 6th, as well as more excommunications in the meantime, like Janice Allred. This issue hints at the continuation of old questions, as well as starting to take the question in new directions. There are contributions from more than 20 scholars on four topics. Women and the priesthood. Women and missions. Sexuality. And the women's movement in Mormonism. Some of my good friends have articles in this issue, which came out just as I was finishing my master's degree. There are also essays from others assessing what had happened to the movement, including a discussion of Levina Fielding Anderson's excommunication 10 years later. Claudia Bushman also offers a key essay on the origins of Exponent 2 and the early days of Mormon feminism in Boston. The turn to sexuality, I think, marks an interesting development. Melissa Proctor's essay, Bodies, Babies, and Birth Control, is still one of the most important articles on this topic. But for those interested in the women and the priesthood question, this issue provides important milestones for that conversation. A decade later, In 2013, this issue crashes into the public view again. But looking back, it's interesting to see just how much had been said on this topic in the pages of dialogue. Bushman's 2003 essay on the history of Exponent 2 set the stage for really telling the history of modern Mormon feminism. Forty years after that conversation in Harvard Yard, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich writes, Mormon women in the history of second wave feminism which comes out in the summer 2010 issue. This article is really crucial because it retells LDS feminist history that had often been seen as LDS women reacting to feminist thought or being influenced by it. But Laurel shows that Mormon women were co-creating feminist approaches to religion. And Laurel would know one of the most important feminist scholars, not in Mormonism, but in America. She writes, Mormon women weren't passive recipients of the new feminism. We helped to create it. 
constructing a timeline of key events reinforced the point. In 1972, the year Rosemary Radford Ruther introduced feminist theology at Harvard Divinity School, Mormon feminists were teaching women's history at the LDS Institute of Religion in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This essay also offers a fuller and more contextualized history of Mormon feminist groups and some reflection on early Mormon feminist interactions with dialogue. Mormon women weren't passive actors, but leaders and co-creators of religious feminism. During the 2000s and 2010s, it's important to note that social media and blogging were breathing new life into Mormon feminism, spreading it far beyond scholars and becoming a mass movement that was mobilizing women all over the place, not just in metropolitan areas or in college towns. Nancy Ross and Jessica Finnegan tell this story in Mormon Feminist Perspectives on the Mormon Digital Awakening, a study of identity and personal narrative in the winter 2014 issue. But I want to consider how this led to a renewed clash with feminists and the church. Women's leadership and roles in the church were really heating up in these decades. Nyland McBain writes a great article, To Do the Business of the Church, a Cooperative Paradigm for Examining Gendered Participation Within Church Organizational Structure, which appears in fall 2012. This was originally given at FAIR, an apologetic conference, and was really in the context of a renewed feminist movement in the LDS Church with radical and more conservative wings. The Ordain Women Movement, Nyland McBain, Valerie Hudson, these were all must-read material in addition to feminist Mormon housewives, WAVE, and other organizations that were popping up in this era. But in the spring of 2013, Kate Kelly and others, including many veterans of the LDS feminist movement, launched Ordain Women. They led mass actions to Temple Square, and gained global media attention. Just over a year later, Kelly was excommunicated. This was a huge news and once again struck many as an irreconcilable conflict between feminism and LDS church practices. Kelly's actions not only divided feminists from the church, but feminists from feminists, with many sympathetic but who believed she'd gone too far. Others felt she did what was necessary. But however one feels, she became a household name in the church and broke a taboo on public discussion, not just on blogs or the pages of dialogue, a public discussion on women's leadership in the church. For an excellent roundtable discussion, check out three meditations on women and the priesthood in the winter 2014 issue, C.J. Kendrick, Rosalind Welch, and Ashmay Hoyland. The summer 2015 issue has a really important article, one of the dialogue classics already, Corey Crawford's The Struggle for Female Authority in Biblical and Mormon Theology, which engaged the question of precedent for women's ordination. Quote, the historical origins of the gender ban have not yet been addressed with the same degree of attention in church discourse. The recent statements made by the church on the racial priesthood ban strongly emphasize the impact 19th century U.S. racial politics had on the development of the priesthood ban for members of African descent, but no such discussion of culture and gender politics has yet been addressed in church publications on gender and priesthood. Crawford looks at both the cultural contexts of ancient Israelites' priesthood and modern LDS priesthood to identify a genealogy of the gender ban. In my view, this is the definitive article on the topic, and I highly recommend it. 
I'd also recommend here Roger Terry's two-part series, Authority and Priesthood in the LDS Church, in the spring and summer 2018 issue. Now, I want to do a little bit of a call back here to Joanna Brooks' article, Mormon Feminism, The Next 40 Years, which appears in the winter 2014 issue. This was a year before she and her co-editors had put out their book, Mormon Feminism Essential Writings from Oxford University Press. Here, Brooks talks about the period from 1970s uh, where Mormon feminism is born in Boston all the way up until the present and imagines what needs to be done as part of the future. She identifies for Mormon feminism five areas, developing theology, institutions, racial inclusion, financial independence, and spiritual independence. Mormon feminist theology has fortunately made a comeback, and dialogue has been an important home for that since Brooks encouraged it seven years ago. In the spring 2016 issue, we have Fiona Givens, The Perfect Union of Man and Woman, Reclamation and Collaboration in Joseph Smith's Theology. In spring 2017, we have a feminist roundtable. Maxine Hanks writes, Shifting Boundaries of Feminist Theology, What Have We Learned? Mehdi Ivy Harrison, When Feminists Excommunicate, and Nyland McBain, Mormon Women and the Anatomy of Belonging. Hanks, you'll recall, had been excommunicated in the September 6th episode in 1993, but she returned to the church in 2012 and reflected on the shifting ground of feminist historical and theological thought in the intervening two decades. Hanks' comeback also includes an interview in the spring 2019 issue, LDS Women's Authority and the Temple, a feminist family home evening discussion with Maxine Hanks. Spring 2019 has an article by Jody England Hansen on the temple also. This whole spring 2019 issue I would definitely recommend for dealing with uh, feminism in the temple. Her article, Condemn Me Not, says, I am grateful for what was removed, referring to the changes in the temple ritual that had happened in the previous year, which consisted of much of the sexist language and action. There are still words that distinguish gender roles, and there are still differences in some of the ordinances between men and women. I see the changes as a step towards a more equitable language, but not as achieving true gender equality at the linguistic level. I'm concerned about some of the added phrases. Catherine Knight Sontag also has an eco-feminist article in this same issue, The Mother Tree. So I want to end with where we began. The spring 2020 issue of Dialogue was guest edited by Exponent 2 as the editorship transitioned away from Boyd Peterson to myself. I guess we can say that this was Exponent 2 and Dialogue's jubilee year, 49 years after the pink issue. And it is remarkable to note how far Mormon feminism has come. Margaret Olson Hemming put together an amazing issue that really put forward some new kinds of feminist scholarship out there, fulfilling in many ways the vision that Joanna Brooks had set forth in 2014. Consider Brittany Romanello's article, Multiculturalism as Resistance, Latina Migrants Navigate U.S. Mormon Spaces. Amanda Hendricks Komodo's article, The Other Crimes, Abortion and Contraception, in 19th and 20th century Utah is, I think, the first history of abortion in Mormon studies 
and benefits from the new histories that show that abortion was incredibly common in the 19th and 20th centuries, including in Utah. There's tons of other great content on this issue too, including some fascinating interviews, one with Emily Clyde Curtis, a former classmate of mine, Mormon women in the ministry that talked about her work as a chaplain, and Barbara Christiansen, another old friend of mine, Women in Workplace Power. The Mormon feminist content of dialogue is an embarrassment of riches. I'm proud that it has stood as a leader in this work for over 50 years now, and I am in awe with all the contributions of such brilliant feminists. From the brave beginnings of the Boston group, to maturation and division among feminists, to conflicts with church leaders, to renewed efforts to carve out space and a future, dialogue has been there. We haven't been the only place, as our friends at Exponent 2 and later organizations and publications, including blogs and social media, will point out. But we have been a continual resource for fantastic scholarship. This conversation has continued to wrestle with women's roles and authority in the church, theology, history, and closely looks at women's lives in personal essays and sociological research. And you know that there is still more to say. I'm excited to announce that in 2022, we will offer our first ever issue dedicated to the topic of Heavenly Mother. You heard it here first. Thank you for taking this journey with me and for taking the journey through Dialogue and for all of your support. If you want to subscribe or donate to Dialogue, you can do so at dialoguejournal.com slash subscribe. This episode was written by me with editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. Our social media managers are Adam McLean and Calvin Burke. The Dialogue Journal podcast is produced by the Dialogue Foundation, a registered 501c3, with support from Mary Thebes. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture, like The Foyer with Patrick Mason from Utah State University. Check out all the shows at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network.